The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are entrepreneurs and business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're also giving back to the community, and so can you. Welcome to Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking to make the most of yourself and your business, then you will want to stay tuned for the next hour. Here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper and wonderful to be back with you again for yet another week. And today we're going to talk about connection and influence and lessons from politics and hostage negotiation with Simon Bucknell and Richard Mullinder. But before I introduce you to Simon and Richard, I'd firstly like to say a big thank you to my guest last week. Um, I hope you got to listen to the show. It was with Jeff Ram. And we talked about celebrity service. And I thought that was a really, really awesome concept. Just imagine how you would improve your level of service if your favorite celebrity um, entered your office building or, or came to do some work with you, what would you do in addition for them that you wouldn't do for other people? And the question is, why wouldn't you do it for others? Um, a really fascinating show. And this week, I've been talking with all sorts of people, from students uh, who are trying to win a great job interviews through to people in very high levels of business wanting guidance on key strategic decisions. And the truth is that at whatever stage you're at, there's always the need to continuously connect, to engage with people, to influence people. And therefore, I think what we're going to talk about today is such an important subject. And if you want to fine-tune your skills, there's few better people to learn from, though, who, than people who have done this at the very highest level. And some arenas, such as political campaigning and professional speaking, and certainly crisis and hostage negotiation, have the ability to really put these skills to the test. So I'm delighted today to welcome uh, two fascinating guests with incredible uh, CVs. Uh, firstly, I'd like to introduce you to Simon Bucknell. Incredibly, he's the twice UK and Ireland champion of public speaking, and he helps professionals and leaders and opinion formers to be more influential and, influential and inspiring with the spoken word. He's worked um, in the... Um, in the House of Commons, um, with um, in, in terms of elect, um, the areas of sort of elections, he's worked um, to campaign to elect the England's youngest MP uh, to go from being third place to win. In two thousand and seven, he be became um, in the top twenty out of twenty six thousand speakers at the finals of the World Championships of Public Speaking in Phoenix, in Arizona, and he's worked. Um, in many, many countries, from Pakistan and Holland and Germany to India and the UAE. He's got a degree from Oxford University and the London School of Oriental and African Studies, and he's based in London with his wife and two children. So welcome to Simon. Thank you, Chris. Delighted to be on the show. It's uh, wonderful to speak to you. And then secondly, I'd like to welcome Richard. Uh, Richard has 25 years of experience working in the London Metropolitan Police, uh, most recently as the former lead trainer at the National Crisis and Hostage Negotiation Unit at Scotland Yard. Um, he's got incredible level of experience uh, developing negotiation skills for officers, 
including the Metropolitan Police, who's worked with the United Nations, the FBI, South Africa's Scorpions Unit, uh, the Indian and Maltese Secret Services. And he now works with lots of companies delivering various programs to help them uh, to uh, improve the way they connect and engage and influence. And he's currently retained as an advisor to a new television series portraying hostage negotiations and murder investigations. A big welcome to Richard Bullinder. Uh, good afternoon, Chris, and uh, great to be here. Welcome. Well, a pleasure to speak to you both. I believe you both together. So um, probably having to huddle quite close around a microphone. We are, at least we're in the same room, that is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, great, great to chat with you both. And I, I'm just going to start by asking you, Simon, you know, what attracted you to politics and professional speaking and helping people and organisations to connect better? Well, as very often happens in life, it was less about what attracted me and more about being repelled by something else. In other words, I had a nightmare experience in my first job, which involved having to speak to an audience. And it was brutal. It was actually my leaving drinks for my first job. I began my career in corporate headhunting. And I remember back in May 2001, when I decided to move on and do something different, being asked at my leaving drinks with no preparation to give a speech. And I hadn't prepared one. I hadn't thought about it. And I hadn't done much public speaking for quite a long time and I just had that hit that so many people listening to this show I'm sure can recognize which is the adrenaline kicking in the mind going a bit blank the heart pounding and it was so painful for me at the time I thought I've got to get better at this and so I joined a public speaking club and that's what first got me into the game as it were purely for my own uh, reasons not because I had aspirations to do it professionally and so I joined a public speaking club right around the time when I was working in Westminster and so that's how it all started and funny how things can turn out <laughs> <laughs> so so all of that energy and drive was that you didn't have to uh, um, sort of have your trousers pulled down in public again yeah, exactly. And I think the reality is that is that remains very motivating as a as a driver when it comes to public speaking for many people, including people very, very senior. The the fear or the concern about looking foolish in front of it could be you know, the members of the company, it could be the press, it could be the analysts, it could be uh, it could be potential investors or, or business partners, or it could even be in some cases it could be people at a wedding. You know, the the, the fear of looking foolish or just somehow not nailing it is is a is a very strong uh, fear and it's one I can relate to because I've had that experience so uh, I think in time with practice like so many things in life you, you you gain greater confidence from having done well and improved and of course it gets easier but uh, I think that 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 edge that adrenaline is always there with something like public speaking or communicating in any situation where you know there really is something at stake it was a, a, quite a motivator for me. A, a similar situation happened with me, but I think one of the I felt so sorry. I was at a wedding uh, a few years ago of a good friend, and he said at the intro, he said, um, I mean, "I've got two people that I could have had as best man, and one of them is Chris, who's um, a president, a regional president of the Professional Speaking Association." Um, however, I really decided I, I had to have Neil. I'd like to introduce you to Neil, who's now going to do the speech, <laughs> and he was. <laughs> Oh, poor old Neil! You could see him. You could see him suddenly start trembling. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I had an experience when speaking as a best man back in two thousand and seven, and right before I went to Phoenix for the for the World Championships, just a couple of weeks beforehand, and I was uh, uh, had the, the the privilege to stand and be a best man for a very good school friend of mine. And the groom during his speech said, "By the way, uh, in the best man speech area, we've got uh, we've got Simon, who's about to go to the World Championships, so he'll be really amazing." 
<laughs> right. Uh, appreciate that. Thanks. Yes. Talk about being set up to fail. <laughs> <laughs> set the bar nice and high. Exactly. <laughs> So, Richard, you had a military and then I know you've got a private sector and then a police detective background. I mean, what was the critical moment that led you to be, you know, become an expert in negotiation and also crisis and hostage situations? Um, there wasn't really a critical moment. What happened was I was uh, the lead trainer for interviewing um, at Scotland Yard and my colleague, a friend of mine, uh, called me up and said, do you want to become a hostage negotiator? And I said, well... Why? And he said, well, we need to redevelop the course and redesign the course. And uh, we thought you might be good. So I got, I suppose, in, in some extent, I got headhunted and then got called up. And over the next five years, redesigned the course, looked at what they were teaching, and at the same time did hostage negotiation. And um, I'm not so sure I like to be called an expert. Uh, so it's always a very worrying <laughs> thing about that. So I think it's a. Uh, I think I'm pretty good at it, but not necessarily the expert. Yeah. And just for people listening, because people do access this show in over 50 countries every month, and do you want to explain what Scotland Yard is? Uh, Scotland Yard is the headquarters of um, the Metropolitan Police, really, but it's basically, I think it's seen around the world as one of the leading um, academies where, where, where the best policing is carried out. So to be part of the Scotland Yard unit and with the Hostage and Crisis Negotiation Unit, there was there are three other units around the world which um, are, are com comparable, I suppose. Which is the FBI, one with the FBI Australian Police Force, and with the Canadian Police Force. And we were there were the four leaders around this area. And it's in London, not Scotland. No, it's in London. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, Scotland Yard is in London. I think a lot of people. It's funny because when you talk about the Metropolitan Police, very few people understand what you're talking about. If you talk about Scotland Yard, everyone understands you. So whenever you introduce yourself, especially abroad, you, I'd say, you know, I'm Richard Mullender and I worked at Scotland Yard. And everyone goes, oh, yeah. And, they, and then they immediately apply Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's quite interesting. It's like Sherlock Holmes and Scotland Yard are the same thing almost. So I'm just going to ask now, you know, we've, obviously you were in politics, Richard, in global politics. And, sorry, Simon. And Richard, you've been... Uh, you know, crisis and negotiating and hostage situations. Maybe I'll ask you first, Simon, what's the connection between politics and, and hostage negotiation? Well, Richard and I have chatted about this a great deal over the years because we, we've known each other for a good seven or eight years and, and worked together. And the key word, I think, is trust. And, well, as you said in the setup for this, for this show, Chris, the, this being about connection and influence. Connection is what enables you to get to trust, um, but you can't influence people unless you have an element of trust. And I think what politics and hostage negotiation also have in common, as we reflect on it and talked about it over time, is that is that typically, not always, but most of the time in both politics and in hostage negotiation, when you're really looking to influence people, you're typically doing so in fairly hostile environments, or at the very least, sceptical environments. I think in a far greater extreme in the case of the, the, the work that, that, uh, that you've been doing over the years. But in politics, very often the challenge is simply getting people to talk to you. And on the doorstep, if people are busy, they come to the door. It, it's such a short window in which to engage people. Uh, and of course, they may or may not have uh, political views that run counter to your own. So you've got the political uh, scepticism potentially, but also just they've got busy lives. And I think cutting through that is a challenge. So, so I think that from, at least from my perspective, I think that's 
a significant area of overlap. What can you do to build trust in those challenging situations? Yes, in an environment maybe there may not be a lot of trust. Not, not a high level of trust for politicians, is there? I think that's absolutely right. And I think it, it, it takes longer to gain trust than to lose it. <laughs> you can lose it very, very quickly. And when you do, then, boy, you're right back to square one. And it takes a lot to rebuild that. And I think we see that in political campaigns and electioneering all the time. So building trust is important. What about for you, Richard? Uh, it's identical. I mean, it's, it's all about trust. We look at the things, the key things for us really is to, first and foremost, get the person to believe in us. Uh, quite often as a police officer, obviously you're coming from the government or you're a police officer, people don't trust you as a police officer. So you have to kind of almost ditch your role and, and get to know the person uh, personally. So the first thing you've got to do is to get them to buy into you as a person. I think the next thing to do is to really focus on the other person. For us, it's about what's the other person's needs, what's the other person's values, what's their beliefs. And only by understanding the other person can you then start to see a way to get some sort of resolution. You know, what may be quite minor for me will be major for another person. Mm. And I've got to understand why it's major for that person. And then I've got to understand what's important to that person and why my solution is a better way of dealing with something than their solution. So a lot of my work wouldn't necessarily be, for instance, um, hostage situations. It may well be suicide interventions where someone's in a situation where they just don't know what else to do. And what you're, it's, it's, it, they call it a temporary suspension of their problem-solving mechanism, if you want to call it that. And so what you do is you listen carefully to them, understand why this one thing this, is causing them that, that problem or that angst. And then you try and get inside their heads and, and work another way out. So that's the thing we look at, is always understand the other person needs and values and, and constantly come back to it. It's all about them, it's not about you. Mm. Which I think in politics, as a, as a parallel, is equally true, but also very, very challenging because invariably a political party is a coalition of interests and typically people who are active in politics have strong opinions on things, strong beliefs. And very often the strength of those beliefs, well, that's great, but if it doesn't resonate with the people you're trying to engage to secure the result you want, yeah. then it's going to be really tough. And I think there's a constant tension in any kind of political campaign between what you as a party have as an agenda or as an individual or a team have as an agenda and then what's actually going to really resonate and play out there in the, in the community. Yeah, quite, quite interesting. I remember Billy Connolly saying that uh, anybody who has the desire to be in politics should automatically be banned from it for the life. <laughs> 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 and I think that's it's quite an interesting, isn't it? Because you've got to, you do, as you say, have some people with very strong opinions. Um, and uh, you've got to try and come across uh, and influence a group of people who are maybe a little bit mistrusting. Yes. But also, that they may have a different, um, if, if, you've got to know what your outcome is, I think. The outcome for someone in politics is to get elected, because then you can make a difference. Uh, that's got to be your initial outcome. To get elected, you've got to understand what the people want, and then you've got to be able to deliver what the people want in a way that the people want it. And, it's, <laughs> and, and it may not be what you initially set out to do, but mm. it's kind of like in, in the end, you know, for people to give you long-term trust, you've got to be seen to be giving them what they want, and, you, and you've got to work it out. And that's the difficulty is it's not always easy to work out how I can give them what they want. That's the same in a hostage situation, you know, if, if they want publicity you've got to find out a way of getting publicity if you if they want money it may be better they get publicity and you've got to work out an alternative 
Mm. So sound so from a Simon, from a you know perspective of you know business and, and all of you this experience that you've had around helping to get people elected, um, you know, what are the key things do you think that businesses could, could really learn from political elections and campaigns? We've got three minutes till break. I think there's a couple of things, assuming that the political campaign is being run well, of course, because there's mm-hmm. plenty of things that I think the world of politics has sought to learn from business. But I think a couple of things. The first is the power of the face-to-face. There's a real premium put on face-to-face contact time, especially since most campaigns, the bulk of the of the, the labour force, if you like, in a political campaign of volunteers, the, the, there's a real premium on the uh, whether it's the candidate or whether it is senior uh, influencers or people who are well known are on the time that is spent actually on a doorstep uh, in terms of FaceTime. So I think that's, and it's just more labour intensive, clearly, to, to visit uh, households and actually get to talk to people face to face. And obviously, there's a lot of cynicism and scepticism uh, uh, around that. But, but a good campaign team will really seek to actually get out there, not just deliver leaflets, but actually meet people and talk to people. And I think that there's a there's a recognition that the energy you bring in that face-to-face connection, because it's such a brief window, it might just be literally 30 seconds or a minute on a doorstep, the energy of that encounter is really important. So I think that's that's one uh, thought. I, I think the second then is around the idea of, of story and personalisation uh, with with not necessarily every campaign, but certainly in the UK, campaigns are typically being run for the to, to, to secure the election of an individual member of parliament or local councillor. And so therefore, the personal story and the brand, if you like, of that individual is really important. And certainly the campaign I ran back in the, in the 2005 general election, the personal story of our, of our candidate, who was very, very local and known in the community, was, was crucial. And communicating that in an engaging way was a challenge, uh, but was also the key to the success of the campaign. I think that's true in business too. The power of the personal brand, especially for entrepreneurs listening to this, that your your personal brand as an entrepreneur is a huge asset for the business, provided it's communicated in the right way. Yeah, it makes a huge amount of sense. Well, well, I'll come back to you, Richard, just after the break. But we're going to go to a commercial break now, and after the break, we shall start getting you know into more into the uh, the detail around uh, connecting and influencing. But uh, we'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One to one mentoring and coaching facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now, back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with uh, Simon um, Bucknell and Richard Mullinder, and we're talking about connection and influence. And uh, before the break, we were you know, exploring um, a little bit about um, the different backgrounds that Simon and Richard uh, come from. And I'm sort of interested, Richard, I mean, you, you actually started to share some really fantastic content um, that I think is very relevant to business. But I mean, from your perspective, what do you really think that, that businesses can really learn by studying uh, the way that um, experts uh, negotiate in a crisis or hostage situation? There's a number of ways. I think, the, uh, as, as we said before, the listening is the most important, you know, really understanding the other person's needs. Um, and it's also quite interesting for me is around um, roles in negotiation. So quite often when you're talking to business people and they talk about going into a negotiation, they may go in in, say, two or three people. And then you say to them, so what's your role in the negotiation? And almost inevitably, they tell you what their job is. And they say, well, I'm technical or I'm sales or I'm pre-sales. And that's not, that's not a role. That's, that's a job. And, and you've got to work out as, a, as a, a hostage negotiator, there's a team. There's a whole team. And the primary role of, of a hostage, the primary role in a hostage team is the talker. But only one person out of a team of four will talk. So the other three are there to listen. And they're listening for all sorts of different stuff. Uh, they're listening for levers, they're listening for um, values, they'll listen for beliefs, they'll listen for motivators, they'll listen for reasons, they'll listen for all sorts of stuff. And, and as a number one, if you're doing the talking, you can't possibly listen as well as someone who's not doing the talking. Mm. But what happens in, in so many business negotiations is that everyone talks. And of course, the more you talk, the more you give away. Every time you open your mouth, you give something away. So for me, if I was negotiating a business negotiation, I'd make sure I've got at least two people just doing listening and I'll be doing the talking. Or better still, I'll get one person do the talking and I'll do the listening. It's a really good point there because uh, you talk about sort of 75% of your power there is active listening and you're absolutely right. And I think even in situations where there is somebody who's doing the majority of talking in a business negotiation, I think what they don't always do is is really realise the value from the people who are actually listening. Well, they also don't understand what they're listening for. A lot of people go in there, and they, this is another big key for us, is we always know what our outcome is. It may, in a hostage situation, it's get everyone out safely. That's pretty easy. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy to get them out. It's easy for that an outcome. If I'm going into a first meeting with a, a client, then my first outcome will be to build trust. And I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm trying to achieve from each meeting. And only by knowing what I'm trying to achieve can I know what to listen for. If I don't know what, I'm, what I want to achieve, then what am I listening for? I'm just getting loads and loads of, of data and information. 
I'm not doing anything with it because I've not actually got a purpose to my listening. Mm. Whereas with a hostage situation, I mean, again, it's really easy. I, I've, I've got to get him off the bridge, okay? I'll get him off the bridge. What am I going to do? What can I listen for that's going to enable me to get him off the bridge? Mm. In business, I can remember early in my career, uh, right at the beginning of my career, very often sitting in on conference calls and or in meetings where my job was to take notes. And I had the, made the assumption that's just because I was the junior person and it was important that I should just shouldn't say anything because I'll say something daft, which may have been true. Uh, but, but still, there was that, I don't think I recognised how important it was to actually be really taking the notes. And then it was a shock to me to find afterwards that senior people would say to me, right, now what did you get from that? And because I just thought, oh, it's just because I'm a junior person, I'm just there just to, to soak up what's going on, rather than actually be of value by, by listening carefully, taking good notes and, and catching things which may have been missed by the people who were, who were actually speaking. And the other thing about that is, of course, the person, the fault of the, uh, it wasn't in Simon taking the notes. He's done what the best he can do. What the fault was, was the people telling to him what to listen for. They didn't tell him what to listen for. So Simon's just taken in this huge amount of information, desperately trying to write down as much of it as possible. <laughs> like a transcript. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And of course, what you get back is, is no real information. You just get a whole series of facts. Well, the real key is... What's motivating them? The real key is what's causing them the angst. The real key is who's the decision maker. And you'll get that if you listen. You won't get that just by writing it all down. And anyway, if you're writing something down, it's historical, which means you're going to miss something that someone's been said anyway. So don't make notes. <laughs> mm, how, does, how, how does that play out on, you know, on the, you know, on the political side when people are, say, knocking on doors and want to talk well, to one-to-one? It's interesting, this idea of the teamwork, because... Uh, especially with something like whether it's telephone canvassing or even face-to-face canvassing in the in the neighborhoods in the actual out in the community working as the difference between working as a team as opposed to just going out on your own with a clipboard is enormous I think many people have would have seen during election time you know, that the, the loneliness of the long distance canvasser, you know, kind of plodding down the road with an anorak on mm. and a clipboard, looking frankly like they want to be anywhere other than doing what they're doing. What we did in the campaigns that, that I worked on in by elections and as well as in the in the general election was was go out in teams. So you'd have one person holding the clipboard, and they they their job was simply to record all the results that were coming in from the doors. And they'd walk down the centre of the street and then there'd be a team of three, even four, maximum four people going to the individual doors being sent out by the, the person with the board. And it kept the energy going. It meant everyone knew what their job was and the, the, the people going to the door could invest maximum energy in engaging the person on the doorstep and then literally report back to the to the, 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 the man with the board or the lady with the board before then going to the next door. So that divvying up of responsibility made a huge difference. And, and surprisingly, you somehow cover a lot more houses as a result because you'd have people literally running to the doors and back again. It became almost like a race. It's a bit of a, a, bit of a competition as well. Yeah, it, you'd be surprised what things happen when you get a team that gets some momentum. It's amazing. <laughs> how, how do you maintain trust though when, you know, in effect... You you might be trying to influence someone's support. Um, you know, is there is there kind of some an ethical line when it comes to influencing voters? Well, I think from from my point of view, it's very simple. It's be honest. You might choose <coughs> not to reference certain things unless they're raised by by a voter. Uh, that's one thing. But but I think you've just got to be honest. I, my own feeling is that is that in politics 
that there's almost a paranoia of saying something which a voter might disagree with. I think actually voters are savvy enough and smart enough to recognise that any elected leader, whether it's in the local council or in the national government or wherever, will have views on things which they may not agree with and, and they want someone to represent them. They don't want somebody who just only agrees with them. So I think there is a strength that comes from saying, well, I understand that you might disagree with X, Y, Z, or, or that you know, this will happen, and I know that that's not great, but let's, but, but actually what it's really about is this, what I think is most important. So that, that's my view, at least. I think anyone that deliberately misleads uh, a voter or, or a community is, uh, is asking for trouble. Um, but to say that's a that's a personal thing. The, the politician whom I work for in in the House of Commons, um, very senior MP, and he did a lot of work on the media. A lot, lot of um, uh, he was interviewed a great deal, and he would say that with with interviews, you, know, you do you really do your best to answer the question, and just be be as as honest and direct as you can. Of course, you're going to position it in the best light that you can. It may come as a surprise to some listeners hearing this, but but actually, from a personal point of view, I think there's a lot of people. In fact, the vast majority of people in politics who want to do the right thing. Uh, and do their best to be as honest and straight as they can. I think in broadcast media sometimes we see some fun and games being played, but I think especially at local level, people are, are, are pretty direct. So I think that's where the ethics lies. You've got to be as honest uh, as you possibly can, and if that means accepting a bit of pain, then so be it. And, and how does that play out with, uh, uh, with your situations, Richard? You know, how honest can you be? No, you're absolutely totally honest. You can't afford to tell a lie. Um, the, the breach of trust is everything. People talk about building rapport, and I think it's a, it's a great thing to build rapport. But, you know, if you're in a relationship, you can have an argument and the relationship doesn't break. If you're in a relationship and you in some way breach the trust of the other person, then the relationship is finished. And that's exactly the same in a, in a, in a, in a very in a critical situation, a crisis situation, is that if the person asks you for something you're not going to be able to deliver... First and foremost, you're going to say, look, I don't know if I can deliver that, but there's a good chance I'm not going to be able to. So you immediately start to lower the expectation. But the, the bottom line is we've had people say, I will come down if I don't get arrested. And you say to them, you're going to be arrested. Well, I'm not coming down then. Okay, well, don't come down. But the bottom line is you will be arrested. Because you can't be seen to lie. Because once the trust is gone, everything's gone. And in those situations, you just can't afford it. So it's very difficult at times. I mean, it's... Because you obviously get asked certain things and, and you, they, they want you to do certain things and you say, I can't do that. I cannot do that. If you don't do that, this is going to happen. Well, let's just talk about that. If I can't do that, what are we going to do? You know, and, and you just have to be absolutely honest. So you're always keeping the, the line of conversation open as much as you can, but you're, being, you're telling the truth so they trust you. Yeah. Well, you cannot, because if you ever get caught out, the moment you get caught out on a lie in, in, in a crisis situation like that, on a crisis negotiation, and even in a normal negotiation, the moment that someone finds that you're trying to have them over or you're lying to them, they'll never trust you again, mm. which means that everything's finished. Mm. Do, do you have an idea? I don't, know, you, you, I don't know how specific you can be with your examples, um, but you, you started to share a bit of a process that you would always go through. Um, are you able to sort of demonstrate that maybe with an example? If you, there's a, there's there's no real process. I think the thing that one of the things is from the outset you have to work. You've got to work with the person you've got in front of you, and this is this is the big thing. I think people that say these, you know, if you if you negotiate like this, you'll get this. If you negotiate like that, you'll get that. It doesn't work like that. It works like this. Is um, I, I'm quite a gregarious person. I'm quite noisy, quite chatty. 
if I get nervous or if I have a bad day, then I become quite introvert. And if you're dealing with me on an introvert day, you've got to deal with me as an introvert. If you're dealing with me on an extrovert day, you can deal with me as an extrovert. And sometimes I'm between the two, you know, and sometimes I can change my mood within a minute. So this idea that you can come along and say, right, well, say this because that will get that result doesn't work. You've got to work with the person in front of you. Yeah. You, you've got to understand the person at that moment, at that time. Absolutely. And I see that in professional speaking and people I've worked with in business as well and elsewhere from the public speaking point of view. You've got to be present with that audience. And you, you might well have some things prepared that you think will work, but you've got to be in a position to adapt. And it's certainly true on on doorsteps too, you're going to get, if you're going to meet, let's say, 20 different people in 20 different houses in the course of an hour, you, <laughs> if you've just got a standard pattern and you've got no scope to, to flex that, then you're toast. You might have an opening line plan for each engagement to kick things off, and actually I found that really, really helpful yeah. as a technique. But beyond that, uh, it, it was essential to, to be open to responding to the person you've got. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, process process can be seen contrived, and sometimes a process can be spotted, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. mean, if we start coming out with certain lines and, and they, you keep repeating them time and time again, then it's never going to work. I mean, and especially in business. I mean, there are all sorts of different sales gimmicks. They kind of turn up. You know, this year it's spin, and this year it's so and so, and this year it's so and so. And of course, once people start, it's, it's great to begin with, but people start to recognise it. Yeah. And once they yeah. start to recognise it, it sounds insincere. Yeah. And, and it is insincere to some extent because you're just doing, you're going through a process. Mm. The best salespeople are brilliant because they're good people and then they have the skills on top of them being themselves. The best negotiators are just normal everyday people with the skills. Mm. They don't change themselves. They just appear, the best politicians come across as natural. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than overcoached. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think going back to the point about honesty that uh, Dick we were making a minute ago, I think that's... The other advantage that comes from being honest and being 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 as true as you possibly can to uh, to, to any given moment <laughs> is yeah. is that is that it it gives you the opportunity not only to maintain your own sense of integrity if you if and, and, and let's let's hope that pretty much everyone here has integrity and values it but also it gives you then a moral high ground to be assertive and strong. In the future, in that relate, I can remember having an experience on on a doorstep where we had somebody come to us. I said, "Oh, it's you, you know, it's the, the political people again. No, you're all the same. You know, just in it for yourselves, just in it for the money." And it was just one of those moments where it wasn't pre-planned. This, but my immediate response was, "Are you serious? Do you actually mean that?" I'm standing here in the hammering rain. It's six o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday. Mm. I'm not. I'm being paid nothing. I've left a job to do this, unpaid for five months in the winter, and you're standing there telling me I'm only in it for myself. You know what I mean? And, and, and I felt a sense of, of, I mean, I was furious, to be honest with you, because I felt so <laughs> insulted. But, but it's, I think there's a strength that comes from knowing that you've got integrity and you've done the best that you can in any given moment. And I think at times that can actually be very persuasive because in that mo- it was one of the most effective conversations I had on the doorstep because by the end, uh, the, the guy took a poster. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, yeah, it's not you again. You're only in it for yourselves. Yeah, yeah. So I think the emotion is important, and it, and it can only come from a sense of, of yeah. real conviction. Well, the same is the same again. If you're talking to someone on a bridge, it's always 2 o'clock in the morning. It's always pouring down with rain. And the first question they, they say to you or they say to you is like, well, you only want me to come down so you go back to your bed. 
And your answer to that is, yeah, you're right. I want to go back to my bed. Why don't you come down? We both go to bed. Come down, so I'll go back to my bed. And you know they kind of look at you a bit surprised, but the the reality is, is why would you say to them, no, no, it's not about that. Of course it is. (laughs) You know, I want to get you off here so I can get you back. I want you safe. I don't want you to do anything. I want you to be, you know, I want you to live. But at the same time, I want to go back to my bed. Yes, two o'clock in the morning. It's raining. You know, why would I want to be anywhere else? And that, I think that's again, as Simon says, it, it, it. it says, yeah, oh, you know, it is a person that's being honest. It is a person that's actually saying, yeah, you're right, I do. You know? And that's when you get the connection and it's Absolutely. an emotional thing that you yeah. sense rather yeah. than something that you program. Yeah, I also feel a bit dumb asking the question, if I'm honest, so which is great. Yeah. I guess if you've, you've already, uh, you may have had situations where people have jumped and you've seen it, you don't want to see it again, do you? Well, I'm, I was lucky, I mean, in that way, that I, I never had that. So that was, that was one of my... Um, one of my good luck stories mm-hmm. it never happened but there's you know but certainly it's happened to friends you know and then they again no you don't want people to jump you know they you know who wants to see someone die no one wants to do that you know that's not that's not what you're there for you're there to help everyone get everyone out and this is the other big thing i think a lot of people think it's just to get the, the hostage out no 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 it's to make everyone safe that's what it's for to get everybody out and that's one of the hardest things to convince a hostage to, the hostage taker because they think you're just there for the hot and no everyone comes out safely that's the idea so i'm just going to we're going to go to another commercial break before we go to the break i just want to read out a little copy from richard richard's website that really uh, kind of resonated with me and uh, he said in it it was written in then you can go to uh, richard uh, so mullinders.org and you can see this for yourself but he says when did you last listen really listen not bide your time until you could get your point across not plan your argument or jump in with advice, but listen with your full attention. So if your life depended on it, or theirs did, you could say for certain where the other person was coming from and why. So after the break, we're going to find out about how do you really listen with full attention. So do join us again in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Hi, I'm Rebecca Costa, host of The Costa Report every Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. My guest this week is the CEO of Aeromobile, Yuri Vakulik, who is introducing the first flying car in the next two years. Are we ready for a flying car? Find out when Yuri Vakulik joins us this Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. on the Voice America Business Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the voice america business channel every friday morning at 10 a.m pacific standard time would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential chris cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the achiever program one-to-one mentoring and coaching, 
facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. tuned in to be more achieve more with host chris cooper if you have a question or comment about our show please direct your emails to info at be more that's info at be more now back to chris cooper Hi, this is Chris Cooper, and if you do have any questions, do get in touch. If you want to find out more information about uh, the shows that are coming up each month and my take on them, uh, do subscribe to the newsletter at chriscooper.co.uk. It just comes out once a month, and it's, uh, it's packed with uh, useful, really useful information and insights from the great guests uh, like Simon and Richard that have been on the show. And so I just want to, we talked about um, a lot of things before the break, and I shared what I thought was some fantastic copy from Richard's website. So, Richard, you know, how do you recommend that people really do listen with full attention? Yeah, I think it's, I think first and foremost, if you ask people, um, are they good at listening? That's always a great question because most people are not very good at listening, if I'm honest. And they, they, they'll often say, ask questions and all of that. And all of that is talking. Effective listening is the identification, selection and interpretation of keywords that turn information into intelligence. And what does that mean? It means basically like um, if, if I know what I'm looking for, I'll be able to select the right words and then I need to get absolute clarity that I've understood what the person means. And once I've done that, now I've got information. And, and people often say that um, knowledge is, you know, all knowledge is power. And actually, no, there's no knowledge, in, there's no power in knowledge. It's the application of the knowledge or the insight that you get from that knowledge that makes it powerful. And I think that's, that's what listening does is you listen, you work out what it means, you get absolute clarity, and then and only then can you really start to help solve or do whatever you want to do. And that's the real key to listening. Any, any thoughts from you, Simon? I think when I think from a political point of view, uh, any credible campaign goes through phases, the first stage of which is the intelligence gathering, understanding what actually matters to people. And the actual listening involved in politics may not be literally being in a room with somebody or talking to them on the phone. It, it can be done through a variety of ways, and you know, surveys or, um, uh, or through uh, leafleting or running perhaps events and seeking feedback from the community. Uh, so there's an intelligence gathering phase, and that, but that's also vital because it shows people that you are actually open. I think in politics, and I think we've talked about this, Chris, there's a temptation to just try to just to speak and present ideas all the time, whereas um, people, people in society want to feel that they're actually, their concerns are being listened to by the politicians, and that means the politicians shutting up and not saying anything for a bit. So I think in any uh, early stages of a campaign that the gathering of the intelligence is vital. Only then, later, do you, in the next phase, do you start to look then at understanding what the implications of that are for how they might actually vote which is the, the second part. So there's the intelligence gathering and then there's the seeking to understand what that will mean in practice from a political point of view. Um, and in between those two phases, of course, there's a whole range of different things that you can do uh, 
from a political point of view in terms of uh, action on policies or running events or demonstrating your ability to do something. Uh, and then the final phase is then the conversion of all of that listening, if you like, to understand where people are at into actually uh, securing support for an actual election itself, so at least from a campaigning point of view, that is. Mm. Um, that's very, very um, fascinating. And um, I'm just going through my mind a little bit. My, my wife's uh, a GP, and uh, at the moment the, the government is has just been elected, are <coughs> focusing in on GPs working seven days a week. Um, yet there's more people leaving the profession than ever before. And... Uh, uh, and the mor- the mor- so morale seems very very low in the profession, and uh, the government doesn't seem to be listening to any responses that are coming back. They're just saying, "Well, we don't think it's as bad as you're making out." Um, I, I, I kind of, you know, there's a bit of a. I'm not sure whether that listening's really happening right now. Uh, yeah, I, yes. I think one of the challenges with this, with people's perceptions, is is in what circumstances in a society do you actually get to see politicians in action? From a public point of view, it's usually through broadcast media or the newspapers, in which case, invariably, the politicians are just doing the talking (laughs) and it's the people who are doing the listening. And I think that can understandably be hugely frustrating because all you see is politicians putting out messages. Um, Behind the scenes, as you say, in the case with with, the... uh, in say the world of GPs, my father too is a is a doctor, um, and I, I think, yeah, as it were, behind closed doors, there's a much more consultative, or at least there should be, process going on. I think you have to be in the room for that. But from a from a public point of view, I think the the means by which we engage with politics is one where it is just they speak and the people listen and are supposed to go out and vote. Uh, I think, uh, but yeah, it, it could be very frustrating. I think if if behind the scenes as well there's no sense of movement or or, or or real engagement i think also though you have to wonder what who's who's the politician's audience and is the audience the gp or is it the public and is it are they then feeding the public the information they want to go and making the gp the wrong in the wrong and this i think you've got to be concerned about it's just like for us if we're trying to convince some person if we're trying to uh, who our audience is think about your audience and i think the politician's audience especially up until the election was the public, and it wasn't the GPs. It may well now change because they've acute, they've they've got what they wanted from the public. In other words, they've been elected, and now what they're going to do is to say, right, okay, let's switch it around a bit. How can we get the GPs on the side? And now then maybe they'll start listening to the GPs so they can bring in that policy and make the policy work for both sides. So I think, you know, you have to be careful. You have to kind of listen to what the politicians are saying. You have to put it in the context of when they're saying it, and having done all of that, you think, right, okay, who are they actually talking to? Mm. And I think in this case, the politicians would have been talking to the public. So, so uh, I'll, I'll move on for that one. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> I was starting to share personal views, and it's probably inappropriate. Um, but do you have any any tips for you know keeping really calm in very challenging situations for people, Richard? Uh, my the, the one that we do is if you can focus on the other person, constantly take away your ego. I mean, this is. The problem comes in, in in a lot of negotiations or a lot of, you know, it, when you're under pressure, you as, as Simon mentioned earlier, you, you're kind of aware that everyone's watching you or you feel everyone's watching you. And actually, and especially in a negotiation in that situation, it's not about me. It's about the other person I'm talking to. There's a quick one that um, you can do is to take a really deep breath. And one of the things it's kind of talked about is, is to box your emotions in your stomach and push them through your feet. And that grounds you to the floor. So it kind of just push them down. 
you know, in your, in your head. Imagine pushing this box of emotions into the floor. And the second thing is to lower your voice consciously by an octave, which is just deepen your voice. What happens under pressure is your voice raises. So if you consciously lower it by an octave, it comes back to normal. It doesn't, <clears throat> it doesn't go really deep like Perhala, my name's very way. You don't do that. <laughs> You that sounds good, actually. I like the sound of that. <laughs> yeah. You don't get that kind of, because what happens is, because if you're normally kind of, if you're very nervous, then your voice, ooh, you know, you start going up there. And then by doing this, by consciously dropping it by an octave, it just comes back to normal. Mm. So that's what we would say yeah. prior to picking up the phone. So it calms you uh, down as well and doesn't give that impression yeah. like you're nervous. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think it, it, from the public speaking point of view, the uh, a key mindset uh, point is to remember what it is. It's not nervousness, it's adrenaline. We call it nervousness, but actually it's, it's adrenaline. And that's something which can then be managed. I think the breathing is, is so true. Um, taking good quality breaths. The key is it needs to be breathing deep breaths of the right sort. So what you don't want is it high up in the chest because it may, gets all very tense, which is the mistake I made at my leaving drinks. And I ended up hyperventilating over a desk as a result. Uh, you need to breathe the, with a stomach, with a diaphragm. And, and the best tip I was ever given on good breathing and it was this tip the chin down to your chest, like as if you your Adam's apple, because it straightens up your airway, you relax your shoulders and you can actually settle the the adrenaline in the uh, which is in the in the diaphragm which is why we get butterflies in the stomach um, and there's one other thing that really makes a difference and I know, Richard you talk about this with the, the importance of the listening position which is uh, whilst body language is a is a difficult and complicated area certainly if you're going to engage people persuasively under pressure and you are feeling nervous then having a neutral or default stance, a how you're going to stand or sit when you're not doing anything and moving is really important because it gives you something to do, like an anchor. And then you can, as it were, relax into moving, relax into whatever it is that you're going to say. But very often people have never thought about that. And as a result, they do all sorts of lint picking and nose picking and face scratching and all those nervous tics, which not only distract for the uh, distracting for the listener but also a really unhelpful for you as a speaker under pressure uh, it affects your own mental state as well i think that's one of the most uh, you know powerful things that you learn on a good professional speaking uh, program is that ability to stand and maybe feet shoulder width apart and and hands fingertips touching somewhere around your kind of the tummy button area and uh, and be able to always come back to that uh, that's right absolutely and, and move with purpose from there Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a bit like on your marks get set go. You know, you, you've got to know what you, where your marks are and, and what position you're going to be in, and then you go. Then you're in the moment. And, and I remember that countless times again on doorsteps. You've got to be set up and ready to literally uh, uh, launch in the moment that the opportunity presents itself. Um, if you stand there shifting and you know crossing your legs and with a with a finger up your nose, then <laughs> your prospects for success aren't great. <laughs> uh, how, how important uh, is body language for you richard in you know often i guess you, you i guess on a bridge somebody may be looking down um, may not necessarily be looking at you or you know in a hostage situation it might be over the telephone how do you do you read that I, I think it's, um, I, I'm, I'm not a great unless you know the person really well you can't really tell their body language i don't think i think there's a lot of um there's a lot of stuff around body language which people say but you know, if you've got a police officer stood on a street corner with his arms crossed, it doesn't mean they're being defensive. It just means they can't put their fingers, you know, can't put their hands in their pockets. So, you know, I think you have to be very careful around body language. I think you can watch your own body language. If I was in a, 
if I was doing a hostage um, situation over the phone or dealing with a hostage situation over the phone, then I would be sat in the listening position. I'd be sat forward, you know, with my hands open on the desk and all of this, and I would put myself in the best listening position. But quite honestly, uh, I'd rather negotiate over the phone because then I can listen much better because I'm not distracted by the person's body language. Which And we're all taught to deceive. We're, we're taught to deceive with our body language from a very early age. You know, our children are competent liars by the age of eight because we've taught them. The first thing you say to your kid, well, the first thing you say to your kid is, "Look at me." So they look at you. You say, "Stop fidgeting." So they stop fidgeting, and then you say, "Did you do it?" And they go, "No." And they, you've just taught them to lie. So you know, and it's it's that's the trouble with body language. I think it's it's I think it can be overrated. This is heartening news as the father for yeah. two, two young children. I'm thinking, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, my youngest uh, was denied some sweets the other day, so he kicked the kitchen window in. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's lovely. And hiding yeah, around the corner and said he didn't do it. It's a pretty good bit of body language, to be fair, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't that he was frustrated, he no, was just no. excited. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't even show his face when I eventually found him in the garden, hiding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just we've only got a, a couple of minutes left now so I just wonder if you've got any final messages that you'd like to leave us with uh, start with you Simon there's something about resilience I think there have been really good points made by Richard about the importance of being of, of, of seeing things from the other person's point of view and really focusing on them and that's so important in presenting and public speaking I think a key lesson that's hit me uh, from both in the work in politics and in all the work in, in public speaking over the past uh, seven or eight years has been the importance of resilience and hammering away at a message uh, I remember we were running a campaign and people got started putting notes up in the windows saying you know we've had enough leaflets thanks no more no more no more literature and i remember the agent of the campaign saying we're going to keep going because when people start to say we've heard it thanks very much we're sick yes yes yes." they're just beginning to get the message and i think what comes from that is that you can never be too clear about a message you're putting across and and if that means running it again and again and again for something to really sink in, it takes time, it takes resilience. It's but the clarity of that point is absolutely vital. So I think that's my closing thought uh, because that's that's true in life, that's true in business for sure. It may take some time, but eventually people will get it, and then you've got lift off. Excellent. Thank you. And how about you, Richard? Just got thirty seconds. Uh, the very quick one I say to you is, is focus on the other person. Think about what the other person needs. And know what you're trying to achieve. Never go in there with a kind of, a, let's see what we find. Always know what your outcome is and focus on the other person. Make it work for them. Wonderful. It's been tremendous talking to you both this afternoon, guys. I uh, really, really enjoyed it. I uh, hope you've enjoyed being on today. Likewise. Great. Yeah, yeah great super. Fun. Really good fun. Great There's stuff. been some great, great tips, great thoughts. And uh, it doesn't sound like we need to worry too much about a process, but just, you know, being with the person in a conversation, being flexible, listening to them, uh, finding out, uh, realizing that it's all about them and really, really listening. So once again, thanks very much for listening to the show. Thanks again to Simon Bucknell. If you want to find out about Simon, go to artsofconnection.com. To find out more about Richard Mullinder, go to www.mullinders.org. That's M-U-L-L-E-N-D-E-R-S.org. Any questions or feedback, you can send them to me. Send them to uh, chris at chriscooper.co.uk or info at bemoreachievemore.com. And on next week's show, I'm having a holiday next week, um, but I'm repeating a favourite show 
uh, one of, of mine, um, with Michael Carroll on Fearless at Work. And we have Michael again um, from the United States, uh, who's going to be on the show at the end of July. And then followed by Colleen Francis, who will be um, calling in from Canada, and will be talking with me about non-stop sales. So do join us again for those interviews, and uh, any questions or feedback, do get in touch. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Be More, Achieve More. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, typically 4 p.m. London on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your week. Enjoy your week.